I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. You're listening to Muses. My name is Lynx, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Muses. We are the podcast all about the amazing women, usually behind the scenes in music history. Today, I got Shanti with me once again. Thank you for joining me. Hi, it's my absolute pleasure. When I was reading this book, I sent you a couple of the quotes and everything because she was just so amazing. And even though this one is a little different than what we normally do, it's not rock and roll. We're going to dive into the jazz era right now. She's from a different era, but so many of the things she said reminded me of all the groupies that we love. She was just way ahead of her time. So how did you find this book? What's the story with creating this episode? Did you know of this person beforehand or just already have the book? What's up? I'm not a huge jazz fan, but I do like some jazz. And Charlie Parker has always been someone that has interested me. And when I found out that he had a, a wife who wrote a book, I was like, hmm, let me let me look into that. And I actually looked for this book for a long time. I couldn't find it at the library. I couldn't locate it anywhere. And then one day 
on thrift books it just happened to come up and I was like oh my god perfect this is my chance that's how I found the Jerry Hall book last time too I know you're a big buyer of this like from this website do you ever sell books on it I haven't yet but I have definitely thought about it I just have to go through my collection and there's definitely things that I would like to get rid of well look it's the time of year to do it It's spring cleaning time, baby. And look, before we get into it, I need a little bit of like Lynx weather talk because (laughs) I miss it. So you tell me how you're feeling now that the snow is melting. Are you feeling inspired? Are you feeling fresh? Are you ready to get the crop tops out? Absolutely. Ever since March 1st hit, we're recording this on March 7th. So it's only been seven days. But just getting out of February has been such a huge weight of depression off of my shoulders like that's the worst month of the year for me always and it's just amazing how like the switch of a day can shift your mindset like every day that passes I'm like slightly happier slightly more excited I can see the light at the end of the tunnel now you know yesterday it was we had a taste of spring it was beautiful out I'm just so happy to be getting out of the dark days Sweep up those cobwebs around your house, open up those windows, let some fresh air in, rearrange the furniture, move around the energy. That's what I've been doing. You've been making crop tops. I've been making crop tops. I've been making crop tops. I have been making sweaters. I've been making little hats, little mushroom hats, so that I look like a little toadstool. Uh, vests. And I'm just, yeah, I'm pumped. I'm, I've uh, been testing some patterns. And I applied to test a couple of like little bralettes. So bring it. I'm ready. I'm literally aging in reverse. Uh, all <laughs> I want to do is wear the least amount of clothes as possible. So I'm with you. So yeah, we're going to talk about Chan Parker. She is incredible. And I just had such fun reading her book. It's called My Life in E-Flat. I... I'm covering, you know, the basis of her life here, but she's so intelligent and the way that she writes, I, she's fantastic. And if anyone can get their hands on this book, I highly, highly recommend it. She goes way in depth about things that I just can't get into on the podcast, but I had such, such a fun time reading this. Do you know the E flat note on the top of your head? Like, can you hear E flat? No. Can you? No. Did you Google it? I did. Yeah. But what? Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to ask you to like to give me an E flat right now. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> but definitely if if I started reading this book and after this episode, I'm I'm going to Google the E flat because I want to know I want to know what life is like in that note. OK, so Chan Parker was originally born Beverly Dolores Berg on June 29th, 1925. I'm not sure exactly when she changed her name. In the book, she says she changed it as soon as she could. So I'm thinking mid to late teens. All right. I mean, it's not terrible. I I like that name. But all right. She got to do her. Chan was born in New York City. She grew up in Yonkers, which is very uptown, kind of beyond Harlem. Her father, Charles, was a vaudeville producer. And her mother was a dancer who also worked random jobs at nightclubs. So she was born into this really fun wild world she describes herself as a jazz baby and music was always something she connected to right from the bat jazz and classical in particular 
At age six, she began to take piano classes and she learned to read and write music, which would come into her life later as well. So growing up, her heroes were people like George Gershwin, Bix Biederbeck, and a lot of the emerging artists at the time, like Cab Calloway, Duke Ellington, Rosetta Tharp. Her mom actually worked at the Cotton Club, and she got to go when she was young and see all these people perform live. Well, that'll do something to you. Exactly, yeah. Chan's father was 20 years older than her mother, and he ended up passing away when he was just 54 years old. So that left her mom and Chan to kind of fend for themselves. The family had lost a lot of their money in the stock market crash, and what was left was depleted within four years of his passing. So working hard was something that her mom had to do to survive and kind of instilled in Chan. She was seven when her father passed. When Chan was in school, she found it very difficult due to anti-Semitism at the time. So Chan's father had been Jewish, so that made her the child of an interreligious couple. She went to what she describes as a WASP school until it became so unbearable that her uncle actually paid her tuition to go to a Quaker school in Poughkeepsie. She was still an outsider there, but she made friends with an Italian girl and met her first boyfriend who was born in Africa. At this point in her life, she was beginning to finally embrace her differences and the fact that she connected with the outsiders. For her last years in school, she ended up going to the professional child school, which was for theater children. You could mail in your homework if you were on tour doing a show. Oh, right on. Yeah. And that's exactly what Chan did. She followed in her mother's footsteps and became a chorus girl. And even there, she was an outsider, though. Her coworkers, the directors, everyone called her the weird one. Hmm. But Chan at this point was like, screw it. I am the weird yep. one. I'm original. Exactly. So this gig led her to one in New Orleans. She was dancing there. She says she learned quite a lot about, you know, the nightlife and the lifestyles of many of the people on the scene. We're talking sex, drugs. She was still just like 17 at the time, not quite ready for all of that. Drugs didn't really interest her, but she did smoke marijuana throughout her entire life. And there's a funny quote in the book that I I give you a little bit of Chan's personality. All right, let's hear it. I have always been convinced that pot is innocent and non-addictive. I thought I would be an old lady in a rocking chair still getting high. However, it's been many years now since my daughters and I have smoked. I can't seem to fit it in between my cigarettes and wine. (laughs) (laughs) I love her. I love her. (laughs) When she was in New Orleans, she wasn't really enjoying that scene. So she decided to hitchhike back to New York with a few of her friends. If you're wondering how that went, it's exactly as expected. Nothing horrible happened. But as Chan puts it in her book, quote, Since then, I've learned all about men who are charming until you say no. Say that again. Since then, I've learned all about men who are charming until you say the word no. Oh, yeah. Okay. She did make it back safely to New York and began working all sorts of jobs, mostly as a dancer or hostess, coat room girl, that kind of thing at all the cool nightclubs. She was really having the time of her life then. And again, she's like 17, 18 at this point. Mm -hmm. She's catching all the awesome gigs. She's making new friends, meeting musicians, 
Soon she had a new nickname, which was the Queen of 52nd Street. Yes. And 52nd Street was also known as Swing Street because that's where all the jazz nightlife happened. I got another quote I wanted to read. Okay. I waited for the doorbell to ring at 7 West for friends who were as passionate as I was for this new music to tell me about a jam session, a band rehearsing, or a hot new musician in town. We were all obsessed by this new electrifying music. It was all that mattered to us. My lovers were plentiful and easy to come by. However, they took second place to the music. I never had a lover who was a musician I couldn't respect. The music was my consuming need. It occupied me totally and was the most important thing in my life. My buddies and I ran from club to session to rehearsal. We shared our records and learned all the solos of our bebop heroes. We were witnessing, as well as participating in, a musical revolution. My doorbell never stopped ringing. Friends and musicians dropped by, and the music continued. Music filled our days and nights. It was a good time to be young, to participate in that important period of musical and political history. Mm-hmm. She's so great. As I mentioned, Chen is half Jewish, and she dealt with the anti-Semitism all her life until that point, and... It certainly helped her connect to all these black musicians that she was meeting. Again, this book is so great. And she really talks about the effects of racism on the jazz community. She points out a good fact that like these musicians were only one generation removed from slavery. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of drugs in that scene, heroin especially, and alcoholism and People look down on people for that without, you know, thinking about the weight that they're carrying of their ancestors as well, right? So the music was alive, but these people were carrying a lot of pain in them as well. And she really had dealt with some of the same issues. Got it. So as Chan was talking about, she's getting immersed in this scene. She's connecting with so many people. Her first musician boyfriend she mentions is Dave Tuff. He was a Dixieland swing drummer. Unfortunately, Dave was married and his wife wasn't so happy about the situation. Chan tells a story about his wife actually showing up at her door and slapping her in the face. Oh, no. Yeah. Dave, like so many other jazz musicians, also had addiction and alcohol issues so their relationship didn't really last but she says that he kept in touch with her until he ended up passing away Hmm. so it's around this time that chan first meets charlie parker charlie parker's nickname is bird so i'm gonna call him bird from now on okay bird it is bird was from kansas city and he moved to new york to play the clubs i'm gonna read a little bit about when they met and what Chan thought of him. When I met Charlie Parker, he was 23 and I was 18. Someone brought him to Seven West and although he wasn't handsome or physically attractive to me, his magnetism and experience were different from any of the men I had known. He had been married twice, had a young son and an old habit. I liked him. He was sweet, gentle and always cheerful with me. He soon became my confidant and best friend. Insensitive as I was to his love for me, I would confide my latest passion. He never reproved me. 
One night, I was dozing on the couch in someone's 52nd Street pad. Bird dropped by. He sat on the edge of the couch and whispered the love he had kept silent. It startled me into thinking about him in a different way. It also frightened me because his feelings were deeper than mine. I wasn't ready to get deeply involved, so we kept it light. We hung out. He dropped by or I went to the club. We smoked reefers together and we were buddies. That's the best way to form a relationship. Smoke reefers, be buddies. Yeah. Let that blossom. Again, Chen's 18. She wasn't quite ready to settle yet. She was loved by all of the musicians on 52nd Street. She had her pick and she wanted to have fun with them. Good. A couple years pass and on her 21st birthday, she recalls this beautiful moment where Bird was playing and she went to see him. He played Happy Birthday at the club along with the song All the Things You Are. They ended up walking to his place and while walking down the street, he took out a road flare he had gotten as like a surprise and lit it and they walked along the street and it was this magical like New York moment of them like with this big light around them and she does say every time of course as an interracial couple they were getting a lot of looks yeah because I mean what year are we in early 40s early 40s yeah but they didn't care this is when their romance really truly began they actually moved into the same flat for a while and They ended up having to move out again because the neighbors didn't approve of the interracial situation. The neighbors would be violent with them, throw things at them, always calling the cops on them. It just became too much and she moved back with her mom for a bit. Just a random fun fact I'm going to throw in here. Before they moved, Bird lived on 149th Street with Miles Davis um, living underneath him. And Miles was his protege. Oh, cool. Yeah. So anyway, Chan at this point was still feeling like maybe she was too young to be tied down. She she wanted to have fun. So she was also casually dating a piano player named Dense Thornton. And when Bird found out, she writes that he was, quote, hurt and unforgiving about the situation, which really shocked Chan because she wasn't expecting that reaction out of him. She didn't realize like how hurt he would be. Mm hmm. Chen had to leave for a dancing gig that was actually here in Canada. And by the time that she went back home, Bird had left New York for California with Dizzy Gillespie. Okay. Chen also discovered she was pregnant by a man in Canada that she would never see or hear from again. Okay. She decided to keep the child. While three months pregnant, she was still dancing. She was in the Brown Derby in Chicago, and she was discovered by this famous Hollywood producer who told her, come to California, I'll get you work. She decided, I'm going to go for it. I think mostly because at this point, she knew Bird was out there and wanted to try to reconnect with him. Okay. That's the first thing she did when she got there, looked him up. She says they had a tender, friendly reunion. So, yeah, she really wanted to rekindle things at this point. But when Bird found out she was pregnant, he did not want to resume their romance. Okay. I also love the word tender. I feel like it can mean so many things. It's a beautiful word. You're right. Chen ended up living there for three months, but obviously being pregnant wasn't going to get her any Hollywood gigs. So she decided I should go back home, should be with my mother. Yeah, women weren't allowed to be pregnant in public in the 40s. You're certainly not going to get a job while pregnant. Hex the patriarchy. The day her daughter, Kim, was born, 
she also received some very disturbing news about Bird. First, there was a rumor that he was dead, but he'd actually suffered from a nervous breakdown. He'd been in the recording studio in California. He was recording a song called Lover Man, and he lost control of his motor functions. He was, at this point, a very heavy drinker and a heroin addict. Okay. The people that he was with took him back to his hotel, and later he was found in the hotel lobby naked, demanding a telephone. Again, they took him upstairs to his room, and then he nodded out holding a cigarette and set fire to his room. So he was arrested, and instead of keeping him in prison, they committed him to a hospital instead. Okay. Chan writes that 1945 to 48 were the most turbulent part of Bird's life, and his manager at the time ended up releasing the song that he had his breakdown, Lover Man, and Bird like never forgave him for it. And his manager was the one who helped get him committed, and Bird took that as um, like a betrayal. Chan went back to dancing after Kim was born, and her mother would take care of Kim when she was working. She met a trumpet player named Bill Hare, and they began dating. And very soon after, Bill asked her to marry him. And although she wasn't truly in love with him, it seemed like a sensible decision because she has her daughter, stability, all of that. Sure. She says they were perfect roommates, but not ideal partners. And you can only fool yourself for so long. So less than a year after they were married, Bill went back to Newark and... They went their separate ways. Okay. Also, it's like, that's a thing about having a child when you're like in your early 20s. It's like you have the kid and then like five minutes later, you're back out dancing, baby. You're yeah. back on the chorus. Yep. And yeah, she was dancing until she literally couldn't dance anymore because of her showing. But yeah. Chen then met a tenor named Dan Lamphere and... She moved in with him at the time, but then word came around that Bird was going to come back to New York. Bird is back, baby. Bird is back. I'm going to read a little part here. Bird was not timid concerning my attraction to any other man, and he dropped by often on his way to score. Don and I slept on separate day beds. One night, Bird tucked me in. I felt his magnetism and his love. Don was on the road, and I got a dancing gig. There was a girl working in the line who told, us, who told us about her children, but she never showed photos. She was married to Kansas Field, a black drummer. I was having a hard time resisting Bird and confided in her. Bird and I had planned a rendezvous one night after the show. Seeing the secret life that Mimi Fields was living and thinking about Kim, I sent Bird a telegram saying no. I drank too much that night, went home, and fell asleep. The doorbell rang. It was Bird. He claimed he hadn't received my telegram. Of course he had. I staggered back to bed. He lay down beside me. In the morning, we made love. He went out to buy food, and when I woke, he made a big mixed salad. Once again, we were lovers. Once again, we were lovers. She tried to resist, and again, the interracial thing, you knowing how hard that kind of life would be, but the magnetism was... Too strong. Too strong mm -hmm. between them. So on May 29th, 1950, she ends up moving in with Bird. And by July of 1951, their daughter, Pri, was born. <laughs> A year after that, their son was, Charlie. So within two years, there were three kids in the house. 
They also had three terriers, two cats. Just chill. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. So wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It was a happy time, but also a very stressful time for the pair, especially financially. Bird had gotten busted and was given a three-month suspended sentence, but they took his cabaret card away so he couldn't perform in clubs. Back then, you had to have a card to, to work in the nightclub scene. Yeah. They even went to welfare. They went to legal aid offices. They were denied everywhere. So for a while, things were getting pretty desperate. But 
somehow a miracle happened and Bird finally managed to get his cabaret card back again, which apparently was unheard of. Once it was lost, it was gone forever type of thing. But so let's talk a bit about Bird's addictions at this point. He really went back and forth on it all. When he was touring, he tried to straighten out or by straighten out, I should say, substitute heroin for alcohol. There was always a substitution type of thing going on. He also had a lot of physical pain. He had bleeding ulcers and a lesion in his abdomen, and he suffered for it. Mm -hmm. He was actually prescribed liquid codeine for it. Okay. So when he was bad, he was real bad. Sometimes you go to see him play, he'd be nodding out on the stage, having very erratic behavior. Chance says that he never struck her, but he was a violent man when he got messed up he would throw things he would yell there's a couple really scary incidents in the book where she talks about finding guns under their pillow one time she walked into the bedroom and on the headboard of their bed there was a hunting knife like embedded in it oh no yeah bird got to be so erratic at this point that all the neighbors knew him the neighborhood police knew him They were constantly being called. Yeah, his brain chemistry was just being totally altered. Yes, and I feel like he was probably a manic depressive or had mental issues on top of the pain and the drug addictions. So highs and lows, highs and lows with him. Bad scene. As if this weren't bad enough, both their daughter Pri and Chan's health kept deteriorating during this time. Chan had chronic bronchitis. She had pneumonia six times during this period. She only weighed 100 pounds. And their daughter, Pri, she had so many health issues. She was two years old. She wasn't able to walk. She had an open heart valve. They didn't do open heart surgery back then yet. Chan also believes that Pri had cystic fibrosis. Mm -hmm. But again, it was such an early time in medicine and... It wasn't diagnosed because not much was known about it. Right. So when Chan got pregnant again during this period, she decided this time I'm not going to keep the baby. As we know, abortion wasn't legal at the time. So there's a very, very horrific story about her experience in the book. I'm not going to go into details. But again, she was already suffering health-wise, already at 100 pounds. Yeah. Her body couldn't handle it. And she didn't heal the way she should have. And she ended up in the hospital. She had gangrene. Oh, no. Yeah. Shortly after Chan got out of the hospital, their daughter Pri entered. She ended up in a coma. And unfortunately, she passed away. Oh, that's... No. She was three years old. No. Bird was in LA at the time. It took him three days to get back to New York to be with Chan. Obviously, the death of their daughter deeply affected both of them and their relationship. She says Bird was amazing and really took control of the situation like during her grief in like the, you know, first month. And they tried to kind of be there for each other. But that summer was like very difficult. She says she kind of turned into herself, which made Bird feel hurt and rejected And Bird was going on these self-destructive benders after pre-passed Bird attempted suicide twice. And Chan found him and 
I think the second time he ended up in a state asylum. Wow. Yeah. The doctors told Chan Bird was a paranoid manic depressive and they wanted to give him shock treatment and have him stay there. Chan was worried how that would affect Bird's life and career. But the doctor was like, do you want a musician or do you want a husband? Like pick or choose, basically. But Bird's managers were like all over this. If Bird was in an asylum getting treatment, he wouldn't be making them money. Right. So he was released again. Chen decided it was best for the family to move out of the city, get away from the dark scene, the drugs and everything. So she found a home in New Hope, Pennsylvania for them. So Bird would still spend most of the week in the city because he was performing there, but he would come home whenever he could. It did help things. She says that he did stop drinking for a while, but of course that didn't last and more paranoid erratic behavior would happen, which led Chan to decide, I'm going to move again and I'm not telling Bird where I am. Like it got to that point where it wasn't good for them to be around each other. Right. Bird was in such a bad state that everyone, everyone was worried about him. His sets at the club were cut short because of his onstage crazy antics. And he even told his friend and fellow musician Charles Mingus that he felt that he wouldn't be around for much longer. And he was right. Oh. On March 12th, 1955, at 34 years old, he passed away. The official causes of death were pneumonia, a bleeding ulcer, and an advanced case of cirrhosis. And he'd suffered a heart attack. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot on a system. Right? Mm -hmm. The coroner who performed his autopsy mistakenly estimated Parker's 34-year-old body to be between 50 and 60. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's how much damage in such a short time that he caused for his body. The last communication Chan had with him was a letter he left for Chan with her mother. It said he he would never harm her and it wasn't necessary for him to know where she was, only that she was all right. Dizzy Gillespie paid for the funeral arrangements. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, even though Charlie considered Chan his wife and vice versa, they never legally married because Charlie had previously married another woman named Doris in 1948. And when he died, Doris suddenly showed up once again, kind of took over things or tried to. Mm -hmm. One of Bird's big wishes was to not be buried in Kansas City. And that ended up happening because Chan wasn't allowed to take charge. Oh, okay. He also mentioned to Chan when he was in hospital that... He did not want, if anything were to happen to him, no special benefit concerts or anything like that. Of course, that happened as well. Apparently, the organizers actually forgot to invite Chan until the last minute. Oops. She didn't want to attend, but the money from it was to go to Bird's children, like their kids. So she felt that she had to. Yeah. Of course, Chan was grieving during this time. So the next year wasn't easy for her she got a job as a waitress to support the kids then came another disaster literally a hurricane came through and kind of devastated the home and all of the belongings that her family had Jeez. she had taken some of bird's instruments though but the rest was unsalvageable but at least she had 
some of Bird's memorabilia left. Thankfully, the Red Cross stepped in and helped families in these situations. And she got replacements for her items. She also got three months free rent. So they kind of ended up in a better situation than before because they were really struggling financially. Mm -hmm. Then Chan decided to actually open her own restaurant for the winter. She called it the Bird's Nest. Cute. It lasted a year, but wasn't a financial success, likely because she would always let musicians eat there for free. (laughs) Chan would go to New York to visit every time she could. And one night she was visiting all her old haunts and she came across Phil Woods. Phil, like Bird, was a saxophonist and sort of known to be Bird's musical successor. She ends up hitting it off with Phil. Phil began visiting Chan and the kids and vice versa until one day he confessed his love for her. He was six years younger than Chan. And she was a bit self-conscious about that at first. But they ended up getting married in 1956, 14 months after Bird passed. Two years later, she had a son with Phil named Garth. She calls him Gar. 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 Then Phil got invited by Quincy Jones to participate in the free and easy tour in Europe. So the whole family packed up and they went on tour. Fun. Soon Kim and Charlie were put in a boarding school, though, and Phil and Chan settled in Paris. They absolutely adored Europe. They decided to once again join Quincy for a year-long tour and... Chen wouldn't travel the entire tour, but would come along as often as possible. And the kids, they take the kids out of school and bring them along as much as they could as well. Oh, that's good. When the tour was over, Chen was once again pregnant and the family decided to go back to America where their daughter Amy was born. Okay. The whole family kind of settled into, you know, domesticity in Pennsylvania. Chen loved it. Their jazz friends would come visit them. Phil would still go on tour here and there. At one point, the pair of them both began teaching at a performance art camp. She really loved it. She spent many years there into the 1960s. Chan writes again about a lot of the discrimination at the time that her kids had to face. She noted when she would look at her kids' school books that there were no black people pictured in them. She was constantly trying to bring up these issues to the schools. She says... When Charlie tried to join the Boy Scouts, he was told he needed a letter from his minister. They were atheists, so he didn't have it. Therefore, he wasn't allowed to participate. Hmm. She really kept at the school about all the injustices. Mm -hmm. And they actually told her that she needed psychiatric therapy. Of course they did. I'm going to read a part to explain how Chan was feeling at the time. Okay. I wanted to live in a society that was not racist, but when I tried to think of where such a place would be, I drew a blank. Now it seemed my need to protect injustice had become neurotic. Maybe so, but could the small-minded people around me tell me where to go to get out of this world? How to adjust to a society in which so many were rejected? Cuba, China, the communist countries which were supposedly free of racism, had authoritarian governments, which I could never accept. Brazil, the multicolored nation, was a dictatorship. America was so corrupt that it was dying from dry rot. I hoped the Puritan money-making ethic was on its way out. Well, I'm sorry to tell you. 
<laughs> yeah. That's like another interesting thing about reading this book was like so much of what she says, unfortunately, are still issues that we deal with today. Yeah, absolutely. Then in 68, Bobby Kennedy was murdered. And, you know, again, life in America was just so downhill. Life at home wasn't much better. Phil was drinking a lot. He, like so many of the other jazz musicians, had some substance abuse issues. He began not coming home. Chan really felt like they were kind of going through the motions of a happy family. She was really longing for the time that they were in Europe and happy and touring. They discussed it, and with only one month's worth of rent money, they decided, let's move out of America. Let's go back to Europe. They eventually settled in France again, and... They were still traveling all over, but this time Kim, her first daughter, stayed in America because she married her high school sweetheart and was attending university. So Kim was in America, but yeah, the rest of the kids came with them. Phil had a lot of issues in America as well, musically. He wasn't as respected as he should have been. He wasn't getting the recognition. But in Europe, he really got that. And when Phil moved there, his band became one of the hottest jazz bands in Europe. They were just the money was just coming in. Everyone was happy. They found their dream home. They began fixing it up. But over the next few years, Phil was gone a lot on the tours. And he went back to America to work there. And again, Chan could just never understand why, because again, in Europe, his music was so much more celebrated. And in America, it was like miserable and tough. And Phil's alcoholism would really take over. So this was a huge frustration in their relationship because he was always promising, like, I'll be home soon. I'm coming back. But then he'd commit to other gigs while drunk. And Phil was gone for like nearly six months at a time. It was a huge strain on the relationship. Then I think we're in like 1972 at this point. The whole family got together for Christmas that year. But Phil came home and was like super distant. He kept making excuses as to why he wasn't sleeping with her. And even though he was supposed to stay for at least a month, he made plans to leave as soon as possible. Rude. Yeah. It was a cold Christmas in in the house and outside. And when Phil left to go back on tour... He, he just never came back. Mm. Chan says, he kissed our kids goodbye and promised to see them soon. Then he walked out of our lives forever, perhaps anticipating my grief. The last thing he said to me was, write, Chan, write about all the things you know. Oh, okay. Yeah. They had been together for 17 years and Chan was really in disbelief for a long time about the fact that he just up and left. Yeah. He still would send very small amounts of money here and there for a little while, but no letters with them. And Chan writes that the kids would call him and tell them that he they missed him and ask him to come back. And he would be like, why? And they were like, we love you. We want you back. And all he would do is complain about how they the long distance phone calls cost him a lot of money. Yikes. Finally, after months and months of Chan writing him, trying to figure out what happened, why, like, what's going on, Phil finally came clean to her that he had another woman in America. Shocker. And that was, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. 
Oh, that's too bad. I mean, after 17 years, you think you can have a conversation about it. Exactly. Don't like just be honest. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting paragraph in the book, again, really of the times and of what women were dealing with that I wanted to throw in here. Marriage, as I'd known it until then, had been an agreement. The male assumed the financial responsibility and the female filled his needs in the home. I didn't dig the roles. I objected to being an unpaid maid, receiving bed and board and fulfilling sexual and social needs. Curse my parents who'd assumed I'd meet a sugar daddy and have no need to make my own way. Perhaps a woman of their time could gain a dishonest advantage by fulfilling a role I was unable to believe in. There can never be an honest relationship between a man and a woman as long as economic and sexual advantages lie with the man. What do you think about that? I just love the way that she succinctly puts these things. Yeah. Her writing is just brilliant. Mm-hmm. This is why I really recommend people read the book. There's so many pieces like that that like she really says it all. Yep. So the next year of her life was quite a dark one. The blow of Phil leaving the family was really devastating to her. But again, over time, she kind of reflected and realized we weren't really the picture-perfect family that I wanted to be. There were issues always. She was getting into her 50s now, and she was alone. She was struggling financially. She had a rough go. But in this time, she kind of also rediscovered music, which really helped her through. Good. Then her daughter Kim got pregnant and convinced Chan to move her and the remaining kids who are now in their teens back to America. When she got there over time, she kind of found a new purpose in life. She was still struggling financially. She was on welfare, but eventually she found a job as a prop master working at a playhouse. (laughs) And she also began taking community sponsored music classes. She absolutely loved them And she really enjoyed writing her own musical arrangements. And she talks about how she asks so many questions and, you know, have discussions. And within a year, instead of taking the class, she was the teacher's assistant. Of course she was. Again, I'm going to read a little paragraph here. It had taken me three years to realize that I was happy depending on myself, that I didn't need to depend on a man and I didn't need to replace Phil. I found my own creativity. Now at last, I can make my own music. I found my voice. I wondered if all those years had been wasted in the traditional female role. But I realized how much I had learned through osmosis and experience. And I had survived. I had been a lake, and now I was a river. I wanted to communicate. I didn't want the music to stop, the people to leave, the party to end. I wanted to talk about music. I wanted to hold music in my hands, my mouth, my ears. I wanted to taste, chew, and swallow music. I wanted to melt and blend myself into the music. Wow. Love her. Yeah, and then to be discovering or rediscovering this all at this age. It's beautiful. It's just, it's a kind of never too late story, you know? Absolutely, yeah. In 1977, she got a call from a Hollywood producer saying that they were planning to make a film about Bird. They flew Chan and Kim first class to L.A. So she was there for like two weeks of pre-production. They were discussing everything. She read the script. She was not impressed by it. The production asked. The production only offered her $1,000 to use her character in the film. 
Chan got an agent who demanded 50,000 and said, if you put me in this, I'm going to sue you for 1 million if you don't agree. And they were like, nope, we don't want this. So the film kind of came to a halt. Oh, okay. Yeah. We'll get back on that. We're putting a pin on that. Okay. This wasn't the only bird-related resurgence happening at the time. Chan was actually getting a lot of invites to events, including um, a Norwegian TV show that was doing a special on him. Chan really felt Bird's presence strongly through this time, and she would always thank him for looking out for her because not only did she get to have all these fun travel adventures, but the money began coming in, and it would come in when she was tight, and so it always kind of helped her out when she needed help most. Exactly. Chan's children were getting older now, and while in the States, they reconnected with their father, Phil. Chan did make peace with Phil as well. And then she felt it was time to kind of look after herself, you know, and she wanted to move back to that small town in France that she loved so dearly. Yeah, mama, like that's your happy place. Exactly. So her kids stayed in the States, but they would come and visit her often. When jazz pianist Bill Evans was performing in Belgium, Chan went to see him. They had known each other from, you know, back in the scene. They went out for dinner and had a long talk. Chan told him about the fact that she was writing. She was writing a lot of lyrics then, and she always wanted to write a book, like her memoir. And he really encouraged her to keep writing, especially the lyrics and arrangements. He died three months later, and the loss kind of made Chan determined to focus more on her writing. She actually began collaborating with a Norwegian pianist named Per Husby, and she also wrote lyrics to a Leonard Bernstein classic. And she sent the lyrics to Leonard, and he really liked them. And he told her, use it. So she actually began getting royalties she wrote her own music. She was getting royalties. It was great for her. Wow. She says, it was wonderful to receive royalties for something I had created. I was making my own music. I couldn't sleep. I lied in bed humming and rhyming. I was awake in the night and working out patterns. Yeah, when that inspiration hits, that's how it goes. Then another call came from Hollywood. Again, a biopic on Bird was in development, and the writer and director, his name was Joel Oliansky, he asked if he could come to France to visit her. So he came, she met him, she really liked him, she felt great about it. She was like, absolutely, I give my blessing on this film being made, I'll help in any way. Unfortunately, Joel didn't get to direct the script because Clint Eastwood wanted to. Oh, and what Clint Eastwood wants, Clint Eastwood gets. Exactly. I don't know. I hope it ended up being good, though. The film is really good. Okay. Clint also visited Chan in France, and she was worried at first because she knew Clint was a Republican and just didn't know how they would fit together. But it was a nice visit. They got along. Chan agreed to help with the film. She gave copies of tapes of birds that were unpublished at the time. She also flew to LA with Bird's Horn for the production. Once again, her daughter Kim went with her and they helped a lot on the production with background. They gave background on like life on 42nd Street and all they could about Bird. They also attended recording sessions and Chan would spend time with Diane Verona who played her in the film and run lines with her and everything. Forrest Whitaker plays Bird. Oh. Yeah. It is a good film. Good. And did she get a nice payday? 
She did. Yes. So when the film was released, also, she was doing all sorts of interviews. So she made a good chunk of change from that. Her book ends saying as she went into the 1990s, she was happy and content living in her small house in her small French town and was just very content, you know? Yeah, I I hear that. Chan's book was published in 1993. She passed away in 1999. She was 74. She got to tell her story. She got to tell her story. Yeah. Yeah. And before her passing, Ken Burns interviewed her for his documentary, which is called Jazz. It came out in 2001. It's on YouTube if anyone's interested. It's like, I think it's like an eight-part series or something. It's it's. I, I didn't watch it all, but I, I was looking through some of it. And it goes from like, the it's like the whole history of jazz, basically. That actually sounds really, like, really cool. Yeah. As for Chan's remaining children, Kim is still alive and well. Kim actually ended up becoming a jazz singer. And apparently she still performs to this day. Fantastic. Yeah. Charlie, her son with Bird, he ended up passing away from liver, kidney, and respiratory failure in 2014. Apparently, the weight of living up to his musical genius father was kind of crippling for him, and he struggled a lot with that through his life. And it sounds like he might have had some of the same substance issues as his dad did. Okay. I read that he ended up becoming a baker before he passed away. Okay. Phil and Chan's daughter, Amy, she actually also has passed away. She passed away in 1991 when she was only 31. God. I couldn't find a cause of death, but I just, I can't imagine as a mother losing two of your kids before you die. You know, that must have been terrible. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Their son Garth is still alive and well. All of Chan's kids who lived long enough had kids. So there's lots of relations out there. Phil Woods recently passed away from emphysema in 2015, and he was 83. The interesting thing is he wrote a memoir as well, which came out a few years ago, and it's titled the same as Chan's book. My Life in E-flat? Instead of my, it's just Life in E-flat, which I thought was weird. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Phil. Yeah. Just a simple Google search, my dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very strange. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Oh, and one last fun fact about Chan. I couldn't really find a right place to fit this in here, but I, it was just so weird that I wanted to throw it in. And she mentions in her book that twice in her life she got struck by lightning. <laughs> Very strange. And she had like a lot of, it reminded me of Pleasant, where she has like a lot of energy related things that would happen with lightning or the weather and everything. Yep. Great. I'm glad you, I'm glad you uh, added that in. Yes. Certain people, you know? Certain people. But yeah, that's Chan's story. I thought it was, she was such a badass woman way ahead of her time. Oh, 100%. That was fantastic. Thank you so much for inviting me on and letting me just put my feet up and listen and keep keeping me a part of this. I really appreciate it. I love the stories. I love what you're choosing and once again thank you for bringing the amazing story of a fantastic woman to more people's thoughts you know to 
the attention of more people. It was nice to dive into the jazz era for a while there as well. Yeah. The way that she talks about her passion for music. It's like you're a groupie, but there was that word didn't exist then. But Mm -hmm. she she was like the queen of 52nd Street. She She was the queen of the groupies in that scene. Yeah. And I love it. Amazing. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, as always, I'm excited to see the carousel of photos. I'm excited to put the names to the faces and looking forward yes. to the release. And I got some good episodes, good ideas coming up for things. I'm going to do another collaboration with She Will Rock You soon. Gorgeous. So everyone look forward to that. And yeah, see you next time, everyone. Bye, everyone. Muses is researched, edited, and produced by Lynx O'Leary. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.